Okay, turn, if you will, to First Timothy as we continue our study of Paul's letter to his son in the faith. Let's uh, just bow our hearts, shall we? Oh, Father God, we just thank you for the freedom and the privilege, the honor we have to be able to come into your presence as we do here this morning and to study your word. Lord, open our eyes, Lord, open our ears, and Lord, soften those hard hearts that we would receive the things that you have for us, that we would grow. Uh, Lord, that we would grow as individuals and that we would grow together as a fellowship. And we just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, chapter 1, Sound Doctrine. We're continuing with the things we were looking at uh, last time. And just to uh, remind you of some of these things, Paul has already emphasized, and he's going to continue to do so, that those taking up roles within the church, and particularly uh, for men taking on leadership roles, they have to be men of faith, um, but also motivated by love. We've talked about that quite a bit already, and we'll come back to it, uh, I'm sure, before we get to the end of the letter. Uh, And Paul explains to Timothy, this young pastor of this church in Ephesus, these responsibilities that uh, are there. Firstly, to teach sound doctrine. There's no point just turning up each week and sharing nice little stories, amusing little anecdotes and things uh, if you're not teaching the word, if you're not teaching the doctrine that Jesus taught and that was passed down and that the apostles then carried on teaching. You know, if we don't teach that, then it's just hot air. It means nothing. You know, I, I loved it, and I know there was no offense intended, um, but praying before the service, Peter said, you know, Lord, we don't want to hear what Barry's got to say. You know, but he was absolutely right. Because you don't want to hear what I've got to say. You want to hear what the Lord is saying. You know, and it's not about the person that stands at the front and teaches. It's about the Holy Spirit. We should be listening to the Holy Spirit uh, and allowing him to speak to our hearts. And everything should be checked against scripture. The second thing is proclaiming the gospel. Uh, we, we should be proclaiming the gospel all the time. And of course, those in leadership should be doing that. But you know, it's a call to all of us in ministry because every one of us is in ministry. You know, it doesn't matter what our day job is, we are still in ministry for the Lord. And then the third thing is to defend the faith. That can be very challenging, but it can also be great fun. You know, because the Lord has given us so many resources and so many tools, and we have such a great gospel, we have so much evidence, we have so many things we can fall back on. And when people challenge us, we should be able to give them a reason for the hope that is in us, with meekness and fear. You know, we shouldn't be arrogant in the way we present our position. There should be that meekness. There should be that that fear, that respect. But at the same time, we don't have to cower. We don't have to be intimidated by those that would tell us we're wrong and that the Bible's nonsense and it's full of contradictions and so on. You know, every time you get those challenges, we should be able to respond. And we should enjoy doing it. It should be a real joy to, to stand up for Jesus. So that's the, the, the things we've been looking at already. I'm just going to read through. We only got to verse 5 last week. So I'm just going to read through these verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, which is our hope. I said last time, this commandment is far more than just a Paul wanting to do something and he thinks it's a great idea. Now this is God has given his job and that God is our Savior, that Jesus is our Savior and our hope. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, 
when I went into Macedonia, that thou might charge some, and that's another military term we mentioned this last time, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And neither give heed to fables, endless genealogies, which minister questions, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. That's our introduction. Paul's saying, you know, when I left you there at Ephesus, I gave you this charge. And it's to challenge those who are teaching this nonsense. You know, and we said last time that Ephesus was just a hotbed of these ideas of Greek philosophy and all those things that have been coming down um, through the centuries. Really all has its root back in ancient Babylon. And that was all derived from the reality of the flood and those that uh, came through the flood, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and so on. As I mentioned last time, that book by Alexander Hislop, The Two Babylons, a great book, it's not an easy read, but it just joins so many of those dots together historically. You see how most of those ancient gods that were worshipped by the Greeks, by the Romans, and so on, you know, they actually had their roots in the things that are scriptural. Uh, but they got twisted, they got perverted down through the ages. Um, but by the time we get to Ephesus, of course, there was all sorts of things going on uh, and ideas. And even from within Judaism, there was these fables and people trying to um, allegorize the text. I don't really mean this. It means that. Uh, well, we have so much of that going on today. So, you know, for us, just as it was for, for Timothy and Ephesus, we've got the same kind of challenges, same kind of environment around us. And then this is the verse that we finished on last week. You know, the end of the commandment is love. That's what the word really is. It's the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart. And the commandment here is talking about the the law. The end of the law is love. The whole purpose of this is love. It's our love for God, our love for our brothers and sisters, our love for our, our neighbor. Out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, out of faith unfeigned and pure heart we said last time you know in contrast to the old nature which is corrupt which is just sinful and conscience meaning to know uh, paul uses this 21 times in his letters and six times in these epistles um, and we said that it's so easy to come to that place where our conscience can become defiled and ultimately seared and we don't really feel the pain of sin some people have jokingly said that the, the best remedy or the best way of achieving a good conscience is to have a short memory. Uh, but that's not really the solution to the problem. The only way we can have a conscience that is clean is to come to Jesus Christ. And the writer of the Hebrews, I believe again, Paul makes it really clear that, that he speaks of the blood and the, of bulls and goats and says that they, you know, they, they atone in one sense, but they can never purge the conscience. Well, the blood of Jesus Christ can purge the conscience. So we have this pure heart, this new life. David, Psalm 51, cried, creating me a clean heart, O God. It's, it's something totally, radically different. When we become a Christian, we have a new heart. And then our conscience is washed clean. Our sins were as scarlet and so on. We talked about that last week a little. And of faith unfeigned. This isn't something that's made up. This isn't something that we're just putting on a show to make it look good. This is genuine. We have a genuine belief and trust in Jesus Christ. And of course, the the bedrock of all of this, as we've said already, is this love. It's this active concern for others, which rules out gossip, murmuring, or anything that will bring harm to other people. One of the problems that many churches struggle with is gossip. 
and people say things in what seems to be a little loving way. Oh, let me just tell you something so you can pray about it. You know, did you know what so and so was doing? And, yeah, and that can become such a destructive mechanism within a body. And we need to be very careful. Um, sometimes if people share things with you, then it's just shared with you and you need to keep it that way. Other times there are things that we need to be sharing amongst the body and all praying together for. But we need to be very careful with the things that we say and always looking for others' uh, well-being, for their spiritual health. So we move on and Paul just carries on from where we were saying, from which... So from that pure heart, that good conscience, that clean conscience, from this faith unfeigned, he says, from which some have swerved. You know, if you're driving a car and suddenly there's an obstacle and you're forced to swerve, take avoiding action, it changes your course. And Paul is saying exactly that here. That some have changed their course and have turned aside, and I don't think you could get this any better, unto vain jangling. You know, jangling is one of those words that just kind of helps you really kind of picture, doesn't it? It's just something that's irritating, it's something that's annoying. Vain jangling. And that's what people do. And some have just, just moved aside from those things that are pure, those things that are true. They've swerved, of course, to these things and just embarked on this uh, ministry of vain jangling. And notice this, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. It's so true that many ministers in many pulpits around the country, around the world, are in this bracket. They desired to be teachers. There was somebody I knew who I grew up with, who was a few years older than me, but I was very surprised when I found out that he was going to Spurgeon's College. I was even more surprised when he finished and was trying to find a church to go and be a, a minister of. And even more surprised when he was actually offered that position. He knew nothing of Scripture. He cared nothing for Scripture. But he wanted to be a, a minister. It was just like a... Yeah, so a kind of a good job. I think I'll have a go at that. And sadly, that seemed to be what it was because you talked to him about the Bible and there was just this void. It's like you were, you were talking in Klingon or something. You just didn't understand what you were saying. And I'm sure you've encountered people like that. And sadly, the church is full of people that have desired to be teachers, desired to get into the ministry. And they know nothing of Scripture. They don't understand what they're saying. And then what they do say just leads people down all sorts of dead-end roads which don't give them any spiritual help or any spiritual food. I was listening to John Corson this morning and he was talking about this verse and he shared it. Apparently it was a true story that was really quite powerful. And I'll share it with you because it illustrates that there's a real danger in people desiring to be teachers. I mean, what is it that James tells us? We shouldn't desire. Let not many desire to be teachers, knowing that you receive a, a stricter judgment. The story was this, that there was or the, the account was that there was a, a lady. She had two children and she was pregnant. She was in Russia and she was on a train traveling to this town way out in Siberia. 
and she was not quite sure where the stop was. So she said to the to the guard on the train, oh, I, I'm really not sure where to get off. Would you be able to tell me where to, to get off when we get there? And the guard said, yeah, absolutely no problem. I'll let you know when we get there. Well, another passenger overheard the conversation. And when the guard had gone, stepped in and said, oh, uh, the, the guard's obviously very busy and walks up in the train. He might forget. So I'll let you know when to get off. He said, I've done this this route many times, and I know the station you're talking about. And so this lady was very grateful. Well, after a couple of hours, this long train journey, this man in the carriage went over to the lady. He said, oh, this, this is the stop. The train had just come to a halt. And she looked out the window, and everything was covered in snow. There was a bit of a platform, but that's all, all they could see. But this man assured that this was the right stop. And so she got her two children and she got her bags and things and they got off the train and then the train then carried on. This was back in the days before we had the electric doors and all those kind of things, just manually opened doors. She opened the door, she got off the train. About half an hour or so later, the guard came back down the carriage and just looked around, puzzled, and just openly said, does anybody know where the lady was who wanted to get off at such and such a stop? And this gentleman said, oh, yes, she got off all right. She said, you got off at the stop. And he said, we haven't got there. We're going to be there in five minutes. And this man said, but what, what was that stop we stopped at? He said, that wasn't a stop. We just had to stop the train just to get some water. He said, that's not a station. That's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing there. Apparently, they turned the train around. They went back to find that this woman and her children all frozen to death. Apparently it's a true story. But the point is, there's a lot of people that desire to be teachers, but they don't know what they're talking about. And when it comes to spiritual things, we can't take chances. You can't take chances. And we live in a day and age, unfortunately, that it's a double-edged sword. We have the internet, and when it comes to teaching, there is so much great teaching available. But there is also so much poison. And... I've encountered a number of people that have gone online and they've heard some teacher say something and they've gone off on a tangent and then they've gone back to people in the church and they've said, oh, I heard so-and-so and they said this and this is what we should be doing. And nearly always it's kind of adding something to our salvation. We need to be doing this Trusting in Jesus alone is not enough. We need to be doing that. Or we need to be doing this. Or we need to have that in our church. Or we need to meet on this particular day. Or Those things are destructive. And they can lead to spiritual death. I remember listening to Sandy Adams a few years ago. He was pastor of Carroll Chapel in America. He's a lovely man of God. and He was just talking. He said they were having some building work done. And they got an estimate. And they eventually said to the to the man who had given them the, the work for the building, they said, yeah, okay, I want you to go ahead. And when it came to the end of the project, you know, the, the bill came in, and it was quite a lot more than the estimate had been. And Sandy went up to this, this man and said, look, if I was that far off in my job, he said, people would go to hell. He said, you know, you, you've made this mistake, and okay, we will pay the difference, but, you know, you can't afford to make that kind of error. He said, when it comes to spiritual things, we can't afford to get things wrong. He said, even a doctor only deals with life and death. He says, for those that teach God's word, they're dealing with eternity. There's a huge weight of responsibility. And that's why James says that those that teach scripture, that teach God's word, will receive a stricter judgment. 
So let's not all be desiring to be teachers. There's a lot of ministries within the body. And indeed, God will raise up those who are to be teachers. And, and of course, Timothy is just such a case. That's the Lord was already working in this young man's life. The, the leadership of the church had already laid their hands on him. They recognized this gift, this ministry. And I pray that if the Lord tarries, the Lord will raise up other people within this congregation and people that are yet to come that will be teachers. We need them. But it's not the job for everybody. And if it's not your ministry and if it's not your job, be very careful about trying to take other people under your wing and teach them scriptural things. Now, a few weeks ago I was saying that it's good to have kind of a Paul-Timothy relationship, have people that you nurture in the faith. And that's one thing, and that's good. But be very careful about the teaching element. We need to understand very clearly what we are teaching, and we need to know that we're teaching in accord with Scripture. That vain jangling, as I said, really speaks for itself, but it just means meaningless talk, empty chatter. It has the idea of beautiful words, but without any content. Yeah, and those who teach such do with assurance. Uh, have you ever sat and heard some of the, the teaching from some of these pastors and ministers and reverends and so on? And they can teach with such confidence. And you think, actually, what did they say? If you try and analyze it, there's no content. They use a lot of nice words and they use a lot of flowery examples and so on, but it's lacking. This has been attributed to a number of people, this statement, but if you lie, tell a lie long enough and loud enough, people will believe it. And sometimes even the people themselves that are saying it. That's certainly true with things like evolution, but it's true with many spiritual things. People will say something and then they believe their own propaganda sometimes and other people then get swept up in it and then all of a sudden we have different winds of doctrine blowing through the church. Paul goes on and says though to Timothy, but we know that the law is good. Paul's not saying that we should do away with the law, there's a problem with the law. He's saying that we know the law is good, but he says if a man use it lawfully or for the purpose for which it was intended... The law is really good. He's not saying we shouldn't teach the law and we shouldn't have teachers of the law. The law is great and it's good. But only if we use it for the way it was intended. You see, throughout Scripture, we're told that the law is good. But you see, we also need to understand that the purpose of the law was to show us that we are not good. You know, our own inability to keep the law is exactly what the law intended to show us. You see that from the very positioning of the law in Scripture, that you get the book of Exodus as Moses goes up the mountain and receives the law, and the very next book is Leviticus, dealing with what to do when you break the law. See, the idea that in and of yourself you can please God absolutely contradicts the Word of God. You and I cannot meet God's righteous standard. That's why we've been given the law. You see, again, the law wasn't given to save us, but to reveal that God is holy and that you and I are not holy. We are not saved by good works. So many cults base their teaching 
on this idea that we have to do certain things. And if we do enough of this, then maybe we'll be granted some position in heaven or wherever. We are saved unto good works. Good works should accompany a Christian. You shouldn't find a, a Christian who's not doing good works. If you are a Christian, as uh, James again makes it very clear, he speaks about faith. If faith without works is dead, so there should be works accompanying our lives as Christian, but it's an outcome, it's, it's a, a result of our salvation. It's not what achieves salvation. Salvation is a gift of God through Jesus Christ and received by faith. Paul goes on and says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Now, for many people, that comes as a bit of a, a strange comment because surely the law is part of this religious system and, and only people who are interested in that are those that are religious, that want to be righteous. But Paul says, no, no, no. The law is not made for a righteous man, but the law is made, he says, for the lawless... And the disobedient. The reason the law is there is not to keep in check those that are walking the right way, but to keep in check those that are not. You know, the reason we have speed limits and laws governing our cars and motorways and so on is not to keep in check those that drive sensibly, it's to keep in check those that don't. It says, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners. There needs to be a line drawn so that people understand what is right and what is wrong. This is for unholy and for profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Notice that phrase there, to sound doctrine, because Paul is effectively saying that everything the law says, everything the law teaches, is in accord with sound doctrine. The sound doctrine that we should be holding to as a church derives from that which is in the law. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, Paul says to Timothy, that Paul had this, this commission to go and proclaim this gospel. But it's a gospel of grace. It's a gospel that reminds us again and again and again that we are saved by faith. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Galatians. And Paul writes to the Galatian church, who are getting a little bit confused about the purpose of the law. Now, do you remember that Paul had spent that time after he'd become a believer? He'd gone down to Arabia. Why? Well, I believe very clearly because he'd gone to Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia. He'd gone to where the law was given, sat there wrestling with all his upbringing, all the things he'd been taught about Judaism and the law, trying to piece it all together. So what purpose is the law then, Jesus? I believe the Lord revealed to him these things that he then writes and shares. There's so much here that we could look at. Let's just go to chapter 2, pick up verse 16, first of all. 
knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Okay, so even if you could keep the works of the law, if you could do the things the law says, that doesn't make you right with God. It can't ever make you right with God because even if you could keep those things, you still are inherently sinful. But by the faith of Jesus Christ, that's how we're justified. That's how we're made right with God. It's almost offensive to us that the only way we can be right with God is by giving up and saying, okay, I can't do it. By trusting in Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of uh, Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Verse 19 carries on. It says, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. And that great verse about being crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And so on. And then, <coughs> verse 10 of chapter 3. For as many as are the works, sorry, as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For as written, cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. This is the point that James will later make. You know, it doesn't matter if you've kept part of the law. If you've broken any of the law, then you're under the curse of the law. And he goes on to, Paul makes this statement that he makes in Romans and here in Galatians and then also in Hebrews. Pulling from Habakkuk 2 verse 4, I believe it is. The just shall live by faith. And he says, the law is not faith. The law is works, the law is not faith. We go on to verse 19 of chapter 3. And it says, what then serves the law? What purpose has the law? It's really the same thing that Paul is addressing here to Timothy. He says, it was added, it was given, the law was given because of transgression, because of sin, till the seed should come. Speaking of Jesus, the promised seed, the one promised in Genesis 3.15, seed of the woman. So the law was given until Jesus should come, to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. It goes on, and let's just read verse 22. But scripture has concluded or confined, one translation says, but has concluded all under sin. Scripture has shown that because we cannot meet God's righteous standard, we are sinners. There's no way out of that except, as it goes on, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster. The Greek word is pedagogue. It's a, a chaperone, somebody who would look after a child, somebody who would watch what a child is doing and look after their development. And make sure they come to a position of maturity. And that's exactly what the law is there to do. The law was a a tutor, a schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ. Bring us to the place of realizing we need a saviour. Paul in that 
section we just looked at lists 14 kinds of people condemned by the law, and there's some scriptures there that you see will echo that. As we said already, it cannot save lost sinners. The law is to expose, restrain, and convict the lawless. It can only reveal the need for a savior. You know, this idea that the law exposes. Ladies, this probably won't apply to you, but the men, you'll have had experience, I'm sure, at times where you've been driving in a car and probably going a little over the speed limit and you see a police car. I say, ladies, I know this doesn't apply to you. And suddenly your heart pumps and you immediately take your foot off the accelerator. You know you're not stupid enough to brake because that shows the police car behind you that you're slowing down. So you kind of coast for a bit and you indicate in and you hope he hasn't seen you and he goes past. and whew. See, what does the law do? It exposes sin. That's what God's law does. God's law exposes that we are sinful. And it shows that we need a savior. That we're in a predicament that we can't get out of on our own. See, when a sinner believes on Jesus Christ, he's free from the curse of the law. Why? Well, because if the law was chasing you for a crime you'd committed, it can only chase you as far as death. Because once you have died, the law has no power over you. The law doesn't convict dead people. It can't. It has no power. And when we come to Christ, we die to the old life. That old life is now over and we begin a new life. The law is powerless. It's interesting, there's five of the Ten Commandments that are listed in these things as well, that Paul highlights. It says, honor thy father and thy mother. This hasn't changed. It doesn't change with the coming in of the gospel. It says, thou shalt not murder. Again, this idea that we've just seen by Paul. Thou shalt not commit adultery. A number of references in that portion we just read that speak of that. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Paul is saying that, in a sense, the heart of the, the sound doctrine that we teach comes from the law, but we are not under the law. We're not bound by the law anymore. It goes on, it says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me. It's a great word, enabled me. For that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. This is really quite an important verse for anybody who is in the ministry, who is anybody who has been called to pastor like Timothy was in this situation. As I said already, that all believers are in the ministry for children of God. But Paul recognized his position, and Timothy is also here, is a result of divine appointment. And that does give a pastor a boldness and a conviction as well. I love that because... Paul is going to go on in a moment and just talk about him being the chief of sinners and so on. But he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he's just been thinking about all these people and all this kind of wickedness and all the sin and everything else that the law exposes. It's almost as if he can't help but realize there, but by the grace of God, he was. He was somebody who was persecuting the church, killing Christians. He was a murderer. But he says, I thank God, sorry, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. It's Jesus who had given Paul the ability. It wasn't Paul's. It's Jesus who gave Timothy the ability. It wasn't Timothy's. And that he counted me faithful. 
Yeah, I love that example that John shared of Michelangelo, that chipping away of the, the marble to reveal what was underneath. And God, in the same way, knows what we're like. He knows what we can be. And he says he counted Paul faithful, knowing what Paul could be through the grace of God. And God knows for each of us what we can be in him, putting me into the ministry. And I love this because, once again, it makes a real mockery of those that put so much store on this idea of ordination. You know, the idea of being you know, ordained into some official denomination. It's God that does the ordaining. It's God that puts pastors into ministry. It's not another man. All we can do is ratify a calling that God has already put there. And he goes on and says, this is God who's counted Paul faithful. He says, you know, I know you can do this. You might not feel you can do it, but I know you can do it. And, he says, and Paul says, who before was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious? And he says, but I obtained mercy. He says, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And there's a big thing here, because if we continue to sin, once we get a knowledge of the truth, well, we put ourselves in a very, very precarious position. And when we study Hebrews sometime, we'll look at that in detail. Because in uh, Hebrews, Paul hits that one on the head. But here he's saying, when I realized the stupidity of what I was doing, the path that I was on, we're seeing again, he says he was a blasphemer. He denied the deity of Christ and tried to force others to do it as well. He'd been a persecutor, physically trying to destroy the church we've seen. And, but he says in ignorance. You know, there's a number of Jewish laws that accounted for people committing a crime through ignorance. And there was mercy shown. And he says in the same way, I've obtained mercy. And he says, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That word, exceedingly abundant, uh, Paul uses this Greek prefix, hooper, which sometimes we translate as super. Um, we find it in, uh, in um, 2 Thessalonians, the super increase in faith there in Ephesians, super abounding power, and in Romans Eight, we are more than conquerors, a super conqueror is the idea. It's actually the word that we now translate in English as hyper. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was, was hyper. It's exceedingly abundant. It's huge with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. See, in one hand, Paul's saying to Timothy, you know, your doctrine is important. You've got to teach the right things. You've got to watch out for those who come and bring false doctrine. But never allow yourself to get puffed up. Never allow yourself to come to a place where you think you've achieved something. Well, lots of examples in Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the clearest we see of somebody getting a little uh, beyond their station as he walks out one night around the walls of Babylon and, you know, puffs his chest out and thinks, yeah, well, I've done all this, look what I've made. And all of a sudden he has a, a dream and realizes it's all going to be taken away from him. For seven years he's forced to eat grass like a, like a cow, like an ox. 
Daniel cares for him during that time and sees him restored. And seemingly Nebuchadnezzar comes back and puts his faith in Daniel's God. Just the tragic situation that led him there in the first place. And, you know, we should always be mindful that we're only who we are in Christ because of his grace. Of course, God can save Paul. Paul knows that God can save any one of us. God can save me. He can save any here this morning. Interestingly, he makes this statement that he considers himself to be least of all the apostles and least of all the saints. You know, we may look at the outward things in Paul's life, but Paul also knew his own heart. That's the thing that we never get to see of each other. We see the outward things, but we see the heart too. And Paul knew the things that went on his heart. He knew that incredible work that had been done by Jesus. That is, again... He doesn't say that I was the chief, but I am chief. He recognizes that old nature that we battle with, each of us. And any Christian that tells you that they're not battling with sin, I suspect is not being completely honest. Because it's an ongoing battle. Because we're called to be overcomers. If there was nothing to overcome, we couldn't be overcomers. God allows challenges for us so that we'll grow, so that we'll become the people that he knows we can be. Again, within that block of marble is the person that the Lord would have us be. He knows, he sees it, and he's leading us there. He's begun the good work, and he will complete it. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul recognizing that his own life was to be an example that God was going to use for others. Again, this grace and mercy, God's love in action here. <coughs> God turned the persecutor into a preacher. Well, through the trials and things he went through, and the murderer into a missionary. This incredible transformation. And if, if that can happen to someone like Paul, that can happen to any human being on the planet. And then Paul, just thinking about these things, so lofty a kind of a thought train he's going on, and just, just bursts into praise. And says, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen? What a statement. Now to the king, eternal. This is not some human power that we're under. God is immortal. You can't kill him. God's never going to be defeated. God is invisible. God is not of the same stuff and substance we are. Yes, we've been made like God in, in our spiritual sense, but, but God is outside of time. He inhabits eternity. So the only wise God, the God that put everything together. Think of all we know about science. All we know about maths and the complexity of numbers and the way numbers form these beautiful patterns and so on. Think of the world in which we live and the wonder of creation. But even the complexity of something like a, a leaf. You know, and the veins within the leaf that take the water from the leaf into the or from, sorry, from the, from the root back up into the leaf to feed it. And again, this photosynthesis that goes on. And the complexity is amazing. Even the different layers within a leaf. That's just something simple that we just stand on outside. No, the only wise God. 
And of course, his wisdom is seen not just in creation, but in his dealings with mankind. And the church, we're told in Ephesians, is something that the principalities and the powers, they look on and they look at the church and they go, that's what it was about. God's wisdom is seen through the church. There's the principalities and powers, they look at the the church and they realize what God was after, what God was trying to do from ages past. All through the Old Testament, the prophets that were coming and why God dealt with Israel in the way he did. Or the promises and prophecies for the nation. And they look at the church and it all starts to make sense. God's plan to bring together in one all things in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 10, one of the most incredible verses in Scripture. God's will is stated there to bring everything together in Christ. The only way is God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Just a bursting into this song of praise. So this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them might war a good warfare. You know, we are fighting a fight. It's not something that we can be ignorant of. John was sharing the other week about the battle we're in, the reality of Satan around us. We mustn't ever lose sight of that. Sometimes we can go through our daily routine and forget that we are in a spiritual battle and Satan is desperately trying to throw things in the way to stop you reading your Bible, to stop you praying, to stop you fellowshipping, to stop you coming to church, to stop you doing anything by which you will grow spiritually. Timothy had had these prophecies said over him. Clearly the Lord was calling this man out and they prayed with him, the elders of the, the church at Ephesus. Or I say Ephesus, it may not have been Ephesus, it may have even been prior to this at Lystra, Derby, those places where he'd grown up. But at whatever point in his upbringing. And Paul says, Timothy, don't give up. Wage a good warfare. Yes, you've got people in the church that are bringing in all sorts of destructive and dangerous doctrines. But think what you have been saved from. Think what you are being made into. And remember that there's still a fight going on. We are in a warfare. A real enemy is there to meet us. And he is knowledgeable and resourceful. And remember that we're on his turf because for now, he is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that he's the prince of the power of the air. This world is his for now. Jesus is going to come back and claim it back. Satan won't be able to stand in the way. But in Ephesians 6, we're given our armor the belt of truth that we should be girded with, the breastplate of righteousness protecting our heart. You know, righteousness, such an important thing. We should really seek after righteousness. You know, our heart can't go in two directions at once. And if we're seeking after righteousness, oh, what a wonderful breastplate that is. Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace not lazily trying to avoid any confrontation or conversation, but understanding that we are in a fight, in a battle, with principalities and with powers. The shield of faith that we have as well, which extinguishes those arrows of the enemy. I don't think that he doesn't stop firing them. You know, many of you are aware, of course, of the incredible defense system that Israel has, that each day extinguishes 
countless numbers of missiles that are being fired by Hezbollah and so on and Hamas all into Israel and so many of these missiles are destroyed before they even get close well that's what the shield of faith should be like for us extinguishing the darts of the enemy the things that he would throw on us you know when he challenges you to say that you're not worthy you don't deserve it you're not good enough I don't know why you keep going to church. You can't, you know, go through a week without sinning or you can't, you know, all those kind of things. As long as you're in that place as Paul was, where you come back to it and you go, you know, but it's, it's ignorance. It's not willfully walking against Jesus. Yes, we make mistakes. We stumble. We fall. We, so many scriptures remind us that uh, the young men will stumble and fall, but they that wait upon the Lord sure I knew their strength. But we need that shield of faith when Satan challenges us. The helmet of salvation. How our mind needs to be protected. How we need to be continually reminded of our salvation. And that it's not in one sense complete yet. Yes, of course it's complete in the fact that our sin is paid for. We have been saved. But we haven't yet been saved from this earthly realm. There will come a time when Jesus will take us out of this world. And we'll be with him for eternity. And we need to keep our mind on those things. The helmet is there to protect the mind, the brain. And our thoughts need to be on godly things. Set our mind on thoughts on things above. And of course the sword of the Spirit should never leave our sight. The sword of the Spirit should always be there. And Paul is urging Timothy to think of these things and, of course, to remember to pray. That is our artillery, if you like, our heavy artillery that we launch back against Satan. And we've been praying and we will continue to pray for our unsaved loved ones. That the barriers, that the walls that Satan has built up will come crashing down. These strongholds, the thoughts in their minds that prevent them from seeing God. They can come down through prayer, and we will keep praying. In Ephesians 6, 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Again, remember where all these things are. It's a command. It's to be continually strong. And again, we receive the action. This is God's work. And we just put our faith and trust in him as he does it. And then just to conclude... This chapter 1, holding faith and a good conscience which some having put away, cast aside is the idea, concerning faith, have made shipwreck. And he mentions two individuals. Now, I know we're not allowed to mention names because it's not deemed very politically correct, but Paul didn't know anything about that then, so he does. And he says, of whom Hymenus and Alexander, of whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He speaks of these two individuals who have swerved. They've changed their course and are not holding this faith, not holding a good conscience. They've cast that aside to go after what they wanted to go after, whether it was popularity, whether it was uh, people that would listen to what they wanted to say, whether they just had enough with anything to do with church. We don't know the background. We don't know all the details. Paul says he's delivered them over to Satan, effectively removing from them this hedge of protection so they really get a taste of what they think they want to realize just how bad it is. The great example of that is if you have a child that says, can I have chocolate, and you give them a bit of chocolate, and they say, can I have more, and you say no, and they keep going, and you go, okay, 
You only do this once. You let them have a bit more and a bit more and a bit. Eventually, they become sick of it. They become so repulsed by it. They just don't want to have any more chocolate. It will happen. Some of you are sitting there thinking, chocolate enough? Is there ever enough? No, no. There comes a point with anything that if you have too much of it, it will make you sick. That happened to Israel in the wilderness. You've got a great example with the quail that came in. They've been crying for meat. And the Lord said, okay, you want to eat meat? You can have it. Not just for a day. You can have it for a whole month. For the first few days, they're loving it. And they go, but it's a tired of this now. After a week, he's like, can we have something else? After two weeks, he's like, we're really fed up with this. And after a whole month, they've learned their lesson to a point. Because then they go back and they do the same things again, like we do. But this is what Paul was saying here. Just let them have out the world. Let them have whatever they want and they will realize, they'll come to that place by God's grace of realizing just how stupid it is to chase after the things of the flesh. Be it position, be it whatever lust of the flesh they were after. And again, that they learn not to blaspheme. He doesn't have a lot to say about them. <coughs> Even in Second Timothy 4.14, uh, there's another illusion there. And it seems to be a, a prerogative. We see it back in First Corinthians 5 as well, uh, another individual. But, you know, even in a, a church setting, um, I think there are occasions that if you have somebody that's continually being disobedient, if they're being disruptive, if they're continuing in sin and they've been challenged, well, then there comes a time to say, we're going to put you out. You can't stay. Go have a, whatever you want and then when you've got to the point of realizing just how empty it really is, then we'll welcome you back with open arms. I pray that would never happen, but it may. And we need to be, as Timothy is being urged to be by Paul here, to be strong, to protect the body, to look after the body, that we would grow together, we'd be strong together, remembering the grace that has called us all into this fellowship in the first place. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for the lessons that come out of this uh, incredible short chapter, but Lord, just so powerful for us, Lord, reminding us that doctrine is so important. If we are to walk by faith, Lord, not being blown around by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning craftiness, Lord, that we see around us, by the people that sound good, that speak very authoritatively and boldly, and yet they don't speak with the authority of your word. Lord, reminding ourselves also that each of us are only where we are because of your grace. Lord, it's not because of anything we have done or earned. We thank you, Lord, that your word has shown us that we were all sinners, saved by grace. Oh, and Lord, you are a wise God. You are immortal. You are, Lord, the King of the ages. And we thank you for the privilege of being yours. May we continue to grow in that grace. And Lord, wage this good warfare until you come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's go have some fellowship together over some teas and coffees. Uh, chapter 2 next week, Lord willing. Let's uh, read ahead. God bless you.